So today, for the EPIPS um, podcast, I've got with me Mr. Simon Clark, who's a paediatric consultant surgeon at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital in London, and he has a subspecialty interest in upper gastrointestinal, thoracic and minimally invasive surgery. Over the last decade, he's helped set up a regular dedicated gastroesophageal reflux multidisciplinary team meeting and discusses these complex patients together with um, his gastroenterology colleagues, dietitians, specialist nurses, speech and language therapists, radiologists and surgeons. So today I'm going to put him through some gruelling questions on gastroesophageal reflux disease. So to kick us off, why is uh, gastroesophageal reflux in infants so common? Well, it's common in infants. Well, first of all, hello, Kate. Hi. <laughs> and hello to everybody else. Um, yes, uh, gastroesophageal reflux in infants is is very common. Um, and up to about six months of age, you'll find about 60 to 70% of infl- inf- infants have given some kind of history of gastroesophageal reflux. And the main reason for this, we used to think it was just immaturity. Um, but we now know that the lower esophageal sphincter relaxes too many times, basically. So we all have gastroesophageal reflux, you and I. You and I have got it at the moment, probably. I have. Um, but the, the the mechanisms by which we cope with it, um, of our lower esophageal sphincter relaxing, the clearance from the esophagus, um, our ability to, to, to cope with that is much greater than an infant. So an infant certainly has a smaller stomach capacity um, and that is also a, a stimulus for refluxing in the wrong way retrograde passage into the esophagus the esophagus is much smaller in an infant um, its capacity as a reservoir is much smaller than URI so those factors combined um, make gastroesophageal reflux a normal situation up until really about six months and then there's a, another significant number who will still resolve up to the age of one year. Um, and around about 18 months, if they are still persistently vomiting, then that's when it starts to trigger pathways, if you like, in terms of treatment. So um, how do you decide if someone has pathological or physiological reflux? Okay. So... Again, physiological reflux is very much age-dependent, so focusing on their age is, is pretty crucial. Um, pathological reflux tends to occur with when, when there are complications of gastroesophageal reflux. So the physiology of gastroesophageal reflux means that um, if a child is healthy and growing, and yet they're vomiting, that's most likely, and they're under the age of one year, then that's most likely to be physiological gastroesophageal reflux. Any symptom alongside that, such as chest infections or faltering growth or asthma, um, older kids, uh, tooth decay, um, laryngospasm, anything that stimulates the airways in in older children, in infants, and they're very receptive children's airways they've got small receptors in it which are stimulated by liquid and acid so those kind of symptoms are when you when you correlate them and we can talk about that later correlating them with um symptoms of gastroesophageal reflux would make it pathological thank you um so the next question is you're in clinic 
and a four-month-old um, male infant is referred um, with failure to thrive on a background of regular vomiting. What else are you interested in the history and what would your differential diagnosis be? Okay, so a four-month-old, um, you know, that's a typical age to still have physiological um, gastroesophageal reflux. Um, if they're faltering growth with that, then you've got to start looking at a, a far more detailed history, particularly about the vomiting. So you need to look at, I tend to look at things in terms of temporal associations, um, type of vomit, um, and tendency towards different behaviours. So temporal, you want to think about um, how long have they been vomiting for, um, does there, is their vomiting timed with feeds? Is it directly after feeds? What type of vomit is it? Is it projectile? Is it passive or aggressive? That's, those are the two types of vomiters that I try to focus on in the clinic. Um, and what other behaviours are associated with the vomit? So do, do they start having breathing problems shortly after it? Um, are they arching? Do they look like they're in pain? Um, very difficult to assess in a four-month-old. Um, is this a, a child who hasn't got any other problems? So you want to think about associated abnormalities, any neurological problems. Are they premature? Uh, much higher incidence of gastroesophageal reflux um, in premature babies. Um, so, yeah, in terms of differential diagnoses, any child who's vomiting um shouldn't really be labelled initially as gastroesophageal reflux. You want to try and think, certainly from the surgical side, think out acute things. So make sure that what colour is their vomit is very important. So bowel vomit is always a red flag um, in this kind of age group. Um, pyloric stenosis at the age of four months, pretty rare, but not unheard of. Premature. Um, it's something to certainly have in your mind. Um, but infection. Is, is definitely something you need to think about. Um, and your analysis is often overlooked in these kids. Um, so take all that out of the equation and then you can start to begin to focus on the actual gastroesophageal reflux disease if, if you think that is... Um, but those kind of differentials. Metabolic is something that is very, very rare, but occasionally will slip in through a surgical clinic, um, like an inborn error of metabolism or something like that. But... Um, a gastroenterologist has usually been involved before you see, but there's been st studies still in the literature which show that up to 15% of children have been fundoplicated have never met a gastroenterologist, which it's almost like the GP referring directly to the cardiac surgeon for a heart operation, in my opinion. Um, and the more intervention by gastroenterologists and nutritionists um, before they get to the pediatric surgeon, the better. So it transpires, I'm glad you took such a thorough history, because it transpires <laughs> that this is an ex-30-week um, premature baby with suspected um, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy at birth and some resultant global developmental delay. So far, he's had one admission to PICU with RSV positive bronchiolitis and a couple of other courses of antibiotics for suspected chest infections. So how do you approach your diagnostic workup and can you explain why you do it and in what order? Okay, well, I refer back then to the gastroenterologist um, and then making sure that they have been involved. So um, a gastroenterologist tends to 
come along with a speech and language assessment and, and a dietetic assessment. So those are pretty crucial in any child who's under the age of one for me. Um, so assuming that they have been involved um, and they've carried out various um, workup, which includes changing the formula, looking at the type of feed, how often it's given, have they slowed, the, increased their frequency, smaller volume feeds, that kind of thing. Um, speech and language, I'd want, because of the chest infections, I'd want them to tell me about the swallow. Particularly now, you've told me this child has got possible HIE, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, um, and that condition comes in various forms, as you know, so it can be mild, moderate, severe. Um, so at four months, it's sometimes quite difficult to know what what that's going to be. Um, but say, so certainly to look at their, their swallow, because some of these chest infections could well be related to abnormal oromotor skills um, and esophageal, upper esophageal dysmotility because of, of this. So that's really important. Um, if, if you are focusing on, and you've excluded all our other differentials, so you've taken urines, etc., um, and this, there's still faltering growth, um, part of the part of the workup, usually following the administration of drugs, so you know, gastroenterologists will often start empirically um, a PPI, um, such as a meprazole, um, often they'll come with omeprazole and ranitidine, though we know the latter is not that useful in, in this age group. Um, so providing those have been put into place, then structural abnormalities, which a surgeon can do something about um, for persistent vomiting, are easy to... So a contrast study early on in your diagnostic workup is really useful. Not to look for reflux, but to look for malrotation. Um, and hiatal hernia, both of which are pretty rare as, a, as a, an investigation into reflux, but it's definitely important to, to have them done at some point. So providing those are, um, are normal, um, I wouldn't necessarily in this child go straight to a pH study um, because you are assuming that this premature baby's got increase reduced lower esophageal sphincter increase relaxations of its lower esophageal sphincter so you can assume he's got reflux um asking a surgeon to surgeons do operations so the operations that we have in our armory are fundoplication and jejunal surgery surgeon surgery um and prior to doing any of those you definitely would want to have some other kind of physiological um investigations like a pH study or a pH impedance but for the moment I would probably settle on an acegastric tube um, because that's not been tried yet um, but speech and language is probably going to be pretty crucial in telling you that. Okay we touch on it so speech and language do see him and they say that he has an unsafe swallow to thin liquids. Initially mm. he does well with an NG tube and some thickened feeds orally but then his vomiting worsens and his weight again begins to fall off the centaurs. How would you manage this? Okay. So, again here, you're trying to work out what, what exactly is the problem. Is the, is the lower esophageal sphincter the problem? Or whether or not there is a, a foregut problem, whether or not the stomach is the problem, or the esophagus is the problem? Um, 
And the easiest solution here is, and the most important thing to to establish is growth. So you, you've got faltering growth. And this in a four-month-old, it can be very hazardous. So your primary aim, um, when you've been asked by gastroenterology, whoever, to to intervene here is to establish growth. So a nasogeginal tube um, is a sure way of doing that. It's an anti-reflux procedure, if you like. It's a procedure where you're passing a nasogeginal tube. And that in a child who still has some maturity to do um, with its lower esophageal sphincter um, is a really prudent uh, next step. There's been no evidence of any life-threatening events here. He's not been on a ventilator. Um, he, has he? He's been on a ventilator. He's been. He's been to PICU. Oh, he's been once. to PICU. Okay, but was he ventilated for that? Yes. Okay, he's not anymore. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so potentially, if he's been on a ventilator, then he has had a life-threatening event. However, if it was linked with RSV bronchiolitis. Yeah, maybe was. that still isn't necessarily um, to do with reflux. So an asogeginal tube is a first step-wise. Um, probably 15, 20 years ago, a lot of these children had fund applications. Yeah. And we know, we now know that that is not necessarily the right thing to do. Um, and I look, you look at my, our own um, rate of fund application in, in the past 15 years since I've been a consultant, then it has reached a peak in, a, in the sort of um, 2005 era and then has slowly on been on the decline and talking to my other colleagues around the country it's the same um, and that's partly possibly due to gastroenterological referral but also to do with a better understanding of mm. who does well with the fund application and for what reason so again it's about the lower esophageal sphincter or is there an abnormality with the stomach so the safest thing to do in a form of hold is to just bypass the stomach okay. and that's an asogeational tumor so you do that, yeah. and you place a nasogeginal tube, you maximise his anti-reflux medication, mm. um, and his weight begins to improve. Do you send kids home with nasogeginal tubes? Um, yes, um, we do, um, but they have to pass quite a strict competency assessment um, process, not only in hospital, but also in their home. So there's lots of factors that need to be taken into consideration here. If you're pretty sure that this child had a, a, a collapse and ended up on a ventilator because of reflux, then you are taking a significant risk in sending someone over with an asogeginal tube um, because of the risk of it popping back into the stomach whilst they're at home. But um, so it, it is a it's a decision that I wouldn't take on my own. It's definitely one that you would take with the specialist nurses, the home support team, and of course the parents. Yeah. So, so the parents like the um, geginal feeding, and mm. at the moment they're not really um, considering a fundoplication. So if <coughs> you've got a five kilo male infant, mm. um, and I guess we were talking about this, this was going around the email conversations the other day um, with the Upper GI Society, but what's your yeah. preferred method of long-term geginal feeding, and, mm. and how do you do this? Okay. So, again, long-term geginal feeding is something that you've really got to be... It's not to be taken lightly. I mean, it, it, it takes the stomach and the mouth out of the equation, which has its own complications long-term of, um, of, of an oral aversion. But in this kind of setting, I would ensure that you've got a, 
a team approach. So you've got your gastroenterologist, you've got your speech and language, and your dietitian involved. And together, if everybody, together with potentially a pediatrician and a neurologist, all think that based on the story so far, this is likely to be quite prolonged. Or if this nasogenital tube to these parents is causing a real hassle. Um, and it's popping out, and they're in and out of A&E, or they can't leave the ward because it's popping out and you're in x-ray all the time, then a more substantial solution. And for me, that would be a PEG, percutaneous endoscopic gastrojejunostomy. Um, and providing you've got the skills to pass a, um, a primary gastrojejunostomy, or the child's already got a gastrostomy, it's slightly easier. Um, then that would be my preferred method. So that's for using a, a T-fastener um, approach where you pass in a in a child of 5 kilos about a 22 centimetre 14 French tube primarily. Um, and yeah, that works, that works quite well. Long term. They need to be changed over six months, but that can be done in x-ray with the um, specialist nurses. So you yourself place the yes. jejunal... So yeah. you put the endoscope down, you put your T-fasteners in. <coughs> yeah, so it's a um, it's a special device, it's a special kit Yeah. Um, that now is in 14 French. So when it was 16 French, even though I have placed it in babies at 16 French, now it's at 14 French, it's slightly more comfortable to place. And do you um, confirm the position of the jejunal limb with, radi- with a Yes, so that, that's done um, fluoroscopically in theatre. So it's the same as doing a, a T-fastener peg button um, but in, and the, there is a splittable sheath and the splittable sheath is taken literally to the pylorus um, and through your gastrotomy and then you pass this tube directly from the splittable sheath and then it just slides down into the jejunum. Um, you take your splittable sheath out and there's a balloon. You have to measure it but most babies are all one centimetre so you take a one centimetre tube button tube um, and then you've got access to the stomach and the the jejunum. Um, I think there's always been a reluctance because of the obstruct obstructs the pylorus. So I've not, we've never found that to be the case. Um, and then you slowly wean them from one to the other, from jej to gastrostomy yes. feeding. Yeah. And in what circumstances would you get an upper GI endoscopy prior to? So, um, again, endoscopy is a, is a very useful adjunct, particularly if you are considering fund application. So that together with, we have talk, talked about pH um, impedance or pH studies, um, prior to doing something such as a fund application, where you've got to be sure it's the lower esophageal sphincter that's the problem, um, and that there is not an abnormal stomach or an abnormal esophagus. So... If your esophagus is being affected by acid, um, or there are other causes of esophagitis, such as eosinophilia or hiatal hernia, um, any of those any other symptoms and associations, it's important to do an endoscopy. Um, a contrast study will pick up hiatal hernia, um, but an endoscopy will will certainly rule out um, important things such as eosinophilia, but. Four month old, pretty rare, mm. pretty rare, particularly without diarrhea. Yeah. So, um, the patient has a, a peg J or a GJ button yeah. and they tolerate it for a period of time, then they start vomiting milk. Mm. Um, how would you manage this? Well, the most common reason to vomit milk after a, a GJ um, 
primary GJ tube placement is that it's misplaced, so it's popped back into the stomach, and, and unfortunately that is probably happens in about one in ten that you do. And when that does happen, you, and that's the problem with doing primary T fastener GJ, is what you do. What do you do then? Um, because you've done an operation, you made a new hole, you have no choice then but to pass an intergestional for about four weeks, whilst your hole heals. So that that is a problem with doing it primarily. Um, or you start giving them gastric feeding, but you're committed probably to them staying in hospital while you give slow gastric feeding to not put them at any risk. Um, but if milk's coming back out of your either their vomiting milk, then it's it's got to be that the tube has, has popped back into the stomach, or there is a distal obstruction or significant foregut dismotility that you've not really diagnosed, like a sort of pseudo obstruction. Yeah. Okay, so these parents actually want to go down the route, as you say, they want to start feeding their child orally and attempting gastric feeding, so they want an anti-reflux procedure. Okay, yeah. So in the baby under one, um, what additional studies, I think we've touched on them already, but in yeah. regard to pH, dual channel pH or pH impedance studies, do you like, do you have a preferred and um, do you like your infant to stop anti-reflux medication before the pH study? And what do you consider is a positive result? Okay. So these physiological tests of reflux, of which the most commonly one used actually is pH studies still throughout, throughout the country, but um, which looks, which quantifies the amount of acid. And though prior to doing something like such something as intervening as a fund application, I think it's really important to get these kind of physiological studies done. If you're fund applicating and you haven't got a pH study um, or a biopsy, you're putting yourself and the patient at, at significant risk here. So get as much detail as you possibly can on this child's esophageal and gastric motility. And the best way for that is, a, is an impedance study. pH studies quantify the acid, that's all. Um, and so when that is profoundly acidic, you've got your answer. But you kind of had worked that out anyway, usually from the history. The pH impedance, or the, and, and you'll hope, probe to agree, but particularly the impedance, gives you a lot more information about acid, alkaline, weak acid, weak alkaline. It also looks at um, liquid and gas, and whether it's going antigrade, retrograde, and those are really important in an infant esophagus. But it'll also tell you about clearance, these distal esophageal boluses that are cleared. And it, most importantly, it correlates with the symptoms that are occurring. So over a 24-hour period, um, they're able to, a pH impedance is able to link whether or not this child was feeding, whether it's lying flat, with all those um, additional measurements. Now, the main problem with impedance, and why it's not taken up everywhere, is its analysis um, and its lack of data, normalised data for children. Um, so the analysis can take two to three hours to do per patient, and you've got to be very skilled at learning, but that's not impossible. Um, and it's more expensive, so it's about three times more expensive than a PhD. Um, but that would be the gold standard, really, for um, to, for trying to... I forgot the question. So, um, yes, I would like anti-reflux uh, medication, certainly for PPI seven days, less so for initiating, 
Um, it was about five days from today, but I just say seven days blanket for all. And if this child's really ill with that, then you need to bring them in hospital. If they, it's impossible to stop their, their drugs, then at least you can do a pH impedance on drugs and still get some very useful information. Um, and what would, what would I consider a, a positive result? Well, that depends on what, which, which tests you're using, really. So, I mean, you can have alcohol, alkali or acid. Um, reflux, which is causing all these symptoms that we've talked about. So moving on finally to the surgery, could you take us through the steps of a laparoscopic fundoplication and include any of your tips and tricks? Um, do you take down your gastrostomy yeah. and do you ever do a less than 360 degree wrap for reflux? Okay, is this the child still with a pink jade in situ? Um, yeah, why not? Yeah, okay. So we do get those every now and then, but I suppose less so with a jejunal tube. I mean, you've got to have a really hard evidence. You mentioned about the parents wanting to gastricular feed. Totally get that, um, particularly in a four-month-old, because um, that hopefully that would be entirely possible, providing you have, you've got good evidence that this is not a gastric issue that it's a lower esophageal sphincter issue. You, know, you can imagine, if you've got a, this is a stomach that fires off, um, unnecessarily, or when the, when there is small amount of gastric volume in it, you fundoplicate that. You're going to make it an even smaller stomach, which is still going to fire off, um, and you convert an open system into a closed system. Um, and those are the children who we've seen in the past. I think fail their fundoplication. They blow a gastric, if you like. A gastrostomy sometimes can help with that, but at the end of the day, is that still the right operation to do? So I think that's what selectively we've been as a, as a, as pediatric surgeons throughout this country i think in some other countries across the pond it's still very much fundoplications are very common under the age of six months um but say we are doing a, a fundoplication in this child now um based on parental but has to be strong clinical evidence that there is that the lower esophageal sphincter is the problem and that the esophagus is normal um then the, the key steps for fundoplication. Um, if you've got a peg J, and I normally take the peg J out and leave the gastrostomy in situ, so I'll put a tube in it or just leave it there. You don't even need to have anything in it. It won't close during the course of your fundo, providing you don't take six hours to do fundoplication. <laughs> um, but if it's uh, if it's appropriately placed and you've got a really good view, then it, it's it's perfectly possible, providing you're happy with your the comfort of your wrap. And if you've got a well-placed gastrostomy, which is not low down in the abdomen and stretching your fundus, and you can tell that as soon as you go in. So if you can see a very stretched angle of hiss as soon as you go in, it ain't going to work. You're going to have to take it down. Um, so for that for that situation, I would either staple across it and and take it down, and then uh, and do the wrap, and then do another gastrostomy at the end of the op. Um, but invariably, I'd say you can actually, particularly if I place the gastrostomy then you can normally get um, a good a good fundal wrap, um, which is comfortable. So my initial steps, um, and you talk about a laparoscopic fundoplication, I like to stand in between the legs of the patient. Um, that's always been my preferred method. An infant? And an infant, you stand at the bottom of the legs, yeah. So we're talking about our four-month-old still here, okay. Six months now. Six months now. <laughs> um, and key steps here for me are uh, appropriate proper port placement so get your ergonomics right um a well-placed secure 
port um, is absolutely vital. So stitch all your ports in. Um, and I tend to use stereo strips. I don't know how much detail you want. But stereo strips are the ports in order to really secure them in. So the message is don't let your ports fall out. You know, it's going to hinder your operation and increase the chance of hernias in your ports, port sites. Um, and in order to obtain the maximal optimized view, um, I use a Nathanson liver retractor. Um, different people use different things. To me, that's always been the best. Yes, the liver does to the, the left lobe, does the tip of the left lobe does turn a funny color um, during a lap fund application, but it recovers. Um, if you do the liver enzymes the next day, you will notice a difference, but they recover. Um, and they've got, we've got very little evidence to say that harms the child. So that to me is the best view, and I use um, a, a, a retractor which is clamped onto the side of the bed in order to hold the Nathanson retractor. And a key tip for putting that in, if you ask for tips and tricks, to me is, is using a port. So a port goes in through the, um, in the midline in the upper, just near the zip sternum, um, and when I say a port, the trocar. So the trocar, 5mm trocar, goes in, and as soon as you're taking it out, you're ready with your appropriate size and sort of the smallest Nathanson for your child. Um, and that slips in immediately. And so you're not faffing around and your Nathanson's going all over the place. And a key tip for the Nathanson is to make sure your the tip of it is always outside the liver. Um, so it sits on the diaphragm and not in the liver. Um, so that's about getting your exposure right. Um, and without that, you're going to be faltering um, all the way through the operation. And having your Nathanson held in a, held in a clamp, like an Omnitract um, or a Merce Retractor, uh, they're called, is, is better than an SHO. Um, in my experience, um, it's not you know, it's not impossible to have an SHO holding it, but um, for a 60 to 90 minute case, that's pretty tough for them. So I would um, advise on the size of mechanical help here. Um, and then your your ports are placed ergonomically. You've got your, your baseball diamond. And then I begin to assess the stomach. And so you said there's a gastrostomy. That's when I'll decide then to take it down or not. Um, I will start with the pars flaccida, which is the membrane over the caudate lobe, um, and try to incise that as close to the lesser curve as possible so that your caudate lobe still has a layer of peritoneum over it and isn't jumping out in your face all the way through the operation because that can be the, the pain. Um, um, and then working your way up the pars flaccida, you're exposing your, your gastroesophageal junction um, and you do the same on the other side. Um, you need a 30 degree 5mm scope. I use 3mm for most cases now, even older children. Um, you need longer instruments for the older kids, longer 3mm. Um, but I just feel more comfortable with 3mm instruments. Um, I think they give you a better delicate dissection and your sutures don't ca get caught in the mechanism which they do in the 5mm when you're tying. Um, and it's easier to teach people with a 3mm, ironically, than with a 5mm. Um, I would use a hook diathermy for most of that um, at this kind of age group. Um, and then it's about assessing, um, and you're exposing the left lateral posterior esophageal space and releasing as many adhesions as possible. And here the tip is just to be respect the spleen all the way through the operation. Um, and particularly with your hook and particularly when you're training 
people, which is always the, um, the scary bit of this operation, is deep down in that left upper corner when you're when you're teaching someone to take a short gastric. Now, do we take short gastrics always? Again, it's not essential. If you're trying to keep your gastrostomy in position, it will be definitely a good idea probably to take a short gastric because you want as much fundal mo- mobility as possible. Um, and I would tend to take that with a ligature device rather than the hook. Um, even at this age? Even at this age, yeah. So my, my right port has a 5mm, it's a 5mm port, which are converting top to it. Um, which allows three and five millimeter instruments in it, and that also a tip there it enable you to put in your sutures through that five millimeter port um, without having to place them through the abdominal wall, which is a perfectly good way of placing them too. But um, most four O sutures, which is what I would use at this age, or ski needles, will all go down that five millimeter port quite nicely. Um, so. Yes, I would take a short gastric, usually with a leg ashore. You can tie it if you want to save money, um, but it's a bit of a, a faff um, to tie them. Um, and the leg ashore can also be used in some of the... There's very little fat in a five kilo baby, but it can also be used in some of the dissection. The key thing here is, though, again, respect the spleen um, and don't start taking your gastrophrenic ligaments with something like the leg ashore. Again, you want fine dissections, so... Um, the monopolar hook with your point always pointed away from the spleen um, is, a, is, is the best instrument there. Um, but invariably, you may not have to take short gastrics. Um, and again, the jury's out in, in paediatrics whether you have to do that, as it is in adults. They've shown that there's less, a lot less blood loss um, if you don't take the short gastrics in adult fund applications. We haven't really got that data in, in children. It's not something that's reported as a standard. Um, blood loss following but I've seen a splenectomy taken out during the fundoplication um, so that's the area you've got to be very 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 careful about um, so once you've mo- I'm trying to do as much mobilisation on that left side before you move on to the right um, because it makes the the exposure of your posterior esophageal window very easy so once you've done that then you move on to your crural area and you mark the crora where you can see the right limb of the right cross. And again, I mark that with a, a hook diathermy. Um, and that enables you then to dissect that posterior esophageal window. And you can use the ligature there, providing it's got a very low heat distribution, the ligature, not a harmonic. I would never use a harmonic again, actually, in front of location. Um, but there's less heat distribution. So and with a Maryland tip, you can also use that for um, dissection. There is a new instrument, a sort of three millimeter bipolar, which I've also used, which is quite nice to use in a fund application, but it's it's pretty expensive. It's twice the price. Um, so then you're beginning to develop your retroesophageal space, and you want to do that in order to lift up your esophagus, of avoiding damaging the posterior vagus, and usually you see that, which gives you a little bit of reassurance. And uh, in a five kilo baby, it's a lot easier, this operation, because there ain't a lot of tissue behind the esophagus. So you're normally into your left side of the retroesophageal posterior upper abdomen pretty quickly. What you have to decide here now is you want stability of the posterior esophagus whilst you do your crural repair. Um, and there are different ways of doing this. You can pass 
a piece of plastic and pass an umbilical tape. Um, my preferred method here is to pass an instrument, um, usually in the site where I'm going to make a gastrostomy. Here you've already got a gastrostomy. And the fact that the gastrostomy itself is lifting the stomach up, you may find that that is enough retraction um, in order to give you a very sound view of the retroesophageal crural space because you want to be able to get good bites on your crura, um, which are peritoneum as well as muscle. I mean, that's the important thing about crural bites. Once you, once you incise that retroesophageal space, the peritoneum splits either side of the, and you'll see your crural muscle. Just to stitch those two together, it'll probably fail. You need to be getting that peritoneum back in a position. And that's the key part to a posterior retroesophageal crural repair for me. Um, you want to be able to see a very tiny triangle of mediastinal, mediastinum, um, i.e. you don't want to make the child dysphagic. So your crural repair should not be so tight when you've lifted up your esophagus that when you collapse it, it's kinked. I mean, that's the worst kind of scenario. So you want to be able to see a little bit of black triangle, um, not too much. Uh, but a very small one so that you know when it's down again in the resting position that the, the esophagus is comfortable and in a straight line. And usually I just place one curl yep. stitch um, and I tend to use Ethobond um, on a ski needle, which is 2-0 at whatever age, because the ski fits quite nicely into that posterior esophageal space. Occasionally there's you may feel that your the, the posterior part of your needle is you can't see it and you're not happy about where it is if that's the case then you could use a 4-0 um, ethobond which comes on a nice small needle yeah. okay and your wrap um, so after once you've done your crawl repair um, you then want to go and retrieve the the, uh, the the wrap and that's often one of the hardest parts of the, this operation and there's different tips to do this Certainly, mobilization of the post-it when you are working on the left upper abdominal um, attachments. If you do that properly, you will see um, glistening serosa of your stomach. If you haven't done that properly, then it becomes difficult to pull your wrap down, wrap round. It will always want to fling back. Um, you can put a small stitch in the, in the top of the hill. I call it the brow of the hill, which is the top of the fundus. Um, with uh, something blue so that you can see it when you're going around your retroesophageal space and when you're teaching that's quite a good tip to um, allow trainees to go and then find the fundus um, but usually you can see it quite easily um, if you've done a good dissection beforehand um, and then you bring it round and the key is to ensure that it stays there when you bring it round if it flips back straight away forget it you need to continue to carry on your mobilization of the fundus um, because it will just twist stroke fail um, in the next few months you might get something which will stitch together just um, but tension is your enemy in this operation it's not about creating a tight wrap it's about creating a valve of floppy muscle which during gastric contraction can contracts so it acts like a one-way valve and d during swallowing, during deglutition, it relaxes. And that's the whole point of a, a valve-like mechanism for fundification is that during swallowing, this relaxes, which is what the stomach does, in readiness for what's coming from above. 
and then whenever something's in the stomach, it contracts. Um, and that's the key to a fungal vacation. And certainly for someone who you want to feed orally, um, which is why I talked earlier about this, the, the stomach, if it's abnormal, and it's firing on all cylinders at all times, whether it's got feed in it or not, you're not going to be able to feed properly. So you bring your wrap round, um, and again, I would use an etherbond um, to stitch it to itself as well as to the esophagus. The key area I didn't talk about was, which is what we used to do, was mobilization of the esophagus into the abdomen. And we now know that from any large population studies, mostly in the US and Europe, that that's got a one in five, one in three association with iatrogenic hiatal hernia post-op. So minimal mobilization of the esophagus. You've got to see the esophagus because you cannot stitch your wrap to the stomach. And that will be a failure. You've got to stitch your wrap to the lower part of the esophagus. Um, and each wrap bite, I would take part of the esophagus with that. And again, I'd use ethibond. And a ski needle here um, is a really nice needle, again, to use. Um, three throws on all stitches for fundification, um, whether you're operating on the core or the fundus. I don't know why, it just works. And um, two throws, you'll often have to do a slip knot in order to um, make give yourself a good knot. Um, and then I would stitch the upper part of my wrap to the diaphragm itself as well, so that it's in the upper part of the esophagus, um, in the lower part of the esophagus, and not on the stomach, which, again, it would be um, a pitfall in this operation. So, Can you always do a 360 wrap? No. Um, there are different indications for a 360, and the majority is a Nissen-type 360 wrap. But if you have got any any indication that there may be um, a distal esophageal problem or a, mot a motility problem in the esophagus, such as in esophageal atresia, where we know the esophagus is abnormal, um, achalasia, then I would not do a, a full wrap. Okay. I'd either do an anterior wrap in the case of achalasia or um, a 270 wrap in the case of... Um, um, Atresia, yeah. And and say you're doing this as a primary um, procedure and the patient doesn't have a gastrostomy and how's your preferred route of putting a gastrostomy in if that's indicated at the end of a funded location? Yeah, well, I've gone through different phases of doing different ways and um, I used to bring it up through the port. Um, but now um, I find the easiest method is either with a tube or a balloon button, whichever they prefer and again that's a decision between the family and the myself and the, the specialist nurse usually um like a malachite tube no i don't use a malachite tube so i either use a core flow tube okay um or a um primary button um and i put that in endoscopically so i'd use a gastroscope um which if my wrap is floppy enough which i want it to be um and my stitches are secure enough then an scope should go through my distal esophageal junction. If it doesn't, then I've got a problem, and I want to know about that early. So um, I would pass an endoscope um, and then watch myself usually do a T-fastener button. That's probably the most common method okay. I use. Yeah. But you could put a malico catheter in, but the problem with the malico is in their rubber and they disintegrate. So usually after about four weeks, you're getting phone calls saying, do something because it's rotten. So the child is well for a number of months. They're now nine months. 
<laughs> and then they stop vomiting again. How do you go about your investigation? And what's the biggest reason for a failure of a fundoplication? And how do you try and minimise that okay, risk? Okay, so we have done a fundoplication in this child, yeah. and the kid is now vomiting several months later. Um, well, obviously, this is a real concern. This is why we did the operation. Um, and the most common reason is a migration uh, of either your wrap um, into the chest or the wrap's been poorly applied, um, but it will be a hiatal hernia. Um, and that's something you'd, uh, you have to obviously consent the parents for, and that's a very important part of the consent. And I would consent all parents for a, an approximate 7 to 10% failure of fund application. Um, though I think if you've got key selective criteria, you can get that down to within 2 to 3% with the fund application. I think that's what a lot of us have now done um, compared to, say, 10 years ago. Um, but, yeah, you've got... So a contrast study is the first thing you've got to, to carry out. Um, if that does not show a hiatal hernia, then you've either done the wrong operation, um, and that's probably more likely that you've, you've done an operation which you tried hard to diagnose a gastric dynamic problem, but you've... Whatever tests we've got in our armory at the moment are sometimes still not good enough, and maybe in the future we will be able to diagnose that a lot better. Um, but it's more likely that your wrapper is, is looser, so loose that your the tone on your lower esophagus during gastric contraction is just not there anymore. Um, and you would need, need to think then about whether you do a repeat fund application, but I would definitely, together with my contrast study, do a, a, a pH, a pH impedance study here to see exactly what's happened. Um, and if it looks like we have acid reflux back again, then you could argue for doing um, a redo fund application. However, the majority of these kids, um, it's more likely you've got some kind of gastric dynamic problem and a PEG-J, um, it's, uh, so a gastrojejunostomy again, back in um, to that port would be the easiest solution. You can still gastrically feed. It's also worthwhile mentioning that you've not trialed, trialed anti-reflux medication alongside your partially working wrap, maybe. Um, and that's often done willy-nilly, really, actually, in the, in the community. By the time you see your follow-up patient, there's been some kind of chest infection or some other kind of associated symptom and somebody somewhere has started anti-reflux medication, which may be not necessary. But in this case, they're vomiting again. Um, so I think that would be prudent to try that again together with your partial wrap. And then if that still fails to work, then you think about a gastro, a jejunal extension to your gastrostomy. And do you ever form um, sort of surgical jejunostomies are using mm. a bit of Roux-en-Y? Yeah. Um, yeah. So more, more, more common these days that we would consider a Roux-en-Y, but again, it would be, need to be in those children that you've, you really are thinking there is a profound dysmotility. Um, certain chromosomal problems, Noonan syndrome, where, where you know there's or, or pseudo obstruction distally, um, and that's been shown on contrast studies. If you've got the ability to do antrojudinal monometry, then you've really got a, a, an easier way, but that's very difficult to interpret and very difficult to carry out in these kind of children. Um, but a surgical jejunostomy, which is going to be there for a very long time, to me, a Roux-en-Y is the best option. Um, and you can do that laparoscopically um, with a stapler. It's a little bit of a fiddle. 
Um, so the easiest thing is usually a, a mini laparotomy um, and a transection with a small 10 centimeter limb um, with a, a really good ad, um, fixation to the abdominal wall. And then we tend to use, there are jejunostomy buttons, um, which are about 20 odd centimeters, and we tend to cut them to about 10. So they just pass into that limb and the balloon sits in the, in your, in your Y limb. Um, and that avoids the problems of leakage on the abdominal wall, which these, you know, the Corpac yellow tubes can cause a lot of problems when they're put into tunneled, um, jejunostomies, um, which is what I, you know, learned to do 15 or 20 mm. years ago. So that, that, that would be my preferred method. And I, I think they have a much better outcome. Mm. Um, so this kid's very unlucky, and despite ongoing redo fundoplication coupled with continuous jejunal feeding, the child continues to scr- struggle. Mm. Um, have you ever done or referred someone for consideration of a gastroesophageal dissociation surgery? Um, I haven't, um, and to be honest, I've never even seen one in this context. I've mm. seen it in other contexts, but I think with... Jejunal feeding, that's incredibly unlikely mm. um, in this context. So if there is still a, a, a reason for vom- a course of vomiting, I would look more distally and think, you know, there is something wrong with my jejunal tube or, you know, there's an extra obstruction at the jejunal site. Um, so in all the years I've been doing this, I've never once considered esophagogastric dissociation. Yeah. There's no going back there. Mm. Yeah. So, um, as I said earlier, you set up this gastroesophageal MDT, um, yeah. and uh, really we want to know a little bit more about that and what the main advantages and obstacles have been, and what advice you'd give someone who is trying to do the same thing. Yeah. Um, well, I think in this day and age, the, the more specialists you can involve for complex patients, the better, no matter what specialty you're in, whether it's upper GI, colorectal, thoracic oncology, whatever. Um, And some of these patients are quite complex. Um, So for ourselves, it became, as opposed to letters, corridor conversations, um, joining clinics, it it was just a lot easier for us to link up with gastroenterologists, speech and language, dietetics, and specialist nurses, Um, and myself in one room once a week so we do this every week and over the past it's been running now for about five years um and our our, our you know the the, for, the format of it is it's become very structured um it's a way of other specialists in other centers because most of us in tertiary centers link up with other units in our networks it's a way of them having a regular contact um with patients they're trying to manage in, in the community. And we we run this as a sort of tele-remote service as well now. Um, so they know at a fixed hour, uh, once a week, they can link into our service. And it speeds up the whole pathway for the patient. Um, and you can alter, you can, you can change pathways, which is really important. So you can avoid... I mean, one of the key areas we've been able to do is avoid contrast studies in everybody who's referred for a PEG. Um, that seems to be something that has been 
profoundly in, in innate in all paediatricians that anybody who's referred for it will we'll do a contrast study first before we refer you. And there's absolutely no need to know where the stomach is. We all know where the stomach is. It's wherever it is. Um, and so situations like that, but as well as getting people to have a standardised way of investigating gastroesophageal reflux prior to referral for an MDT um, has been really important and helping them establish uh, impedance in, in their local centres or helping them to analyse their impedance. That's also been a really important part of our, our MDT. Um, so it, it's yeah, it's making the, the service not only robust for the tertiary centre, but more importantly, I think, making it better for the network. And we're all involved in a network, and that's going to be our future, is about network working. Um, and all, most of our patients come from the network. Um, so we have, we've been able to speed up the pathway for the patient, basically. Um, so just a few final things. Um, we've already spoken about esophageal atresia repair. Um, but mm. during your workup for someone with bad gastroesophageal reflux um, that's got positive impedance, esophagitis on endoscopy, you also get an upper GI contrast, and that shows equivocal findings for where the DJ is cited. Um, so they've got good going reflux, but also a possibly um, malrotated. Mm. Um, how do you approach that? Good question. Um, it's pretty rare, um, but that's why we do the contrast study. It's why I do it, to exclude a hiatal hernia, but um, abnormal DJ or malrotation. Um, and it, I learned under Lewis Spitz at Great Ormond Street, and I think his advice was, you know, he'd done more paediatric fund applications and investigated more patients than anybody I knew and he always taught me to treat the malrotation first um, so that's what I've done um, and invariably that's enough okay yeah. um, and finally do you think um, in the future of anti-reflux surgery um, mm. that these uh, what's your experience and thoughts on um, possible uh, future directions such as the transoral incisionless fundoplication, strata, endosynch, lynx, etc. Okay, so, yeah, I've not done any of those, but I've seen them all in action. Um, and yeah, when they first came out, so like the endosynch, the, um, the strata, and um, the isofix is the other, other one, um, I think it was very exciting, potentially, because... Certainly in these older children, and these scopes are enormous, I don't know if you've seen them, they wouldn't go down a five kilo baby, it'd cause a lot more problems putting them in a five kilo baby. So these are a way of meeting in the middle for those mild to moderate gastroesophageal reflux patients, and that's when it's been applied in adults, really. Those that want to come off their meds but don't, don't want a big operation, um, so they're not severe. Um, and... The stretcher, which is the radiofrequency ablation and the endocinch, which is basically like stitching, have, has had some, like, there are publications in children, but pretty few, um, and not for a long time. And I think that kind of sums it up, really. Um, and the adult world now, in certainly in the endocinch, um, is showing a recurrence on a, a sort of, the longer you leave it, the more likely it's going to come back. I think the strata is pro pro possibly something that is a little bit more interesting um, in, in terms of its long-term follow-up. But at the moment, I think in children, the scopes are so enormous um, that this is very limited to young 
teens, old, older infant, older children and, and young teenagers um, who don't want to go through a fund application. So um, I think it's pretty limited in its use. More, more interesting, I think, in the future is how we're going to be diagnosing motility. Um, I'm thinking of the stomach in the same way you think of the bladder. You know, we, urodynamics is, is so important. Um, we need to, more research needs to come out um, on the dynamics of the stomach, so gastrodynamics, electrogastrograms, being able to interpret them, having normalised values for children, impossibly difficult, which is why we've got any. Um, have you used the pacemaker at all? Yes, I have used the pacemaker to not particularly great results. Um, so when you've got profound gastric emptying, problems, you've got a significant gastroparesis, there ain't much else other than jejunostomy um, and a, a gastric pacer. Um, and the one patient I've put it in with adult help, who, mm. because they're the ones with all the experience, um, it never worked. Um, but it was certainly something that seemed incredibly interesting mm. to think about for some of our other patients, but very involved procedure, um, and not without its potential complications. But I think that's the future. Wireless um, manometry, wireless uh, wireless pH readings and manometry readings without the needs for tubes and, and computers attached to the patient. Um, being able to do a manometry in someone who's wriggling around um, and you know without tubes being attached to them is going to be the future of, of gastroesophageal reflux surgery. I think. Okay. Well, thank you very, very much hey, very for welcome. today's instalment on EPIPS. And, Instead of um, me talking by now. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll try and get you on here as, uh, again soon. Thanks. Okay. Bye-bye.